0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we are in the book of Jeremiah. Today we arrive at chapter 3, a little bit shorter than chapter 2. We've got 25 verses to deal with, the first five of which actually are a carryover from last week, the final aspects of his first sermon we saw the call of jeremiah in chapter one we saw the first message that came to him in chapter two where he had to stand and declare thus saith the lord and deliver the message that was given to him chapter two and verse four hear the word of the lord o house of jacob and had a message to preach fills the rest of that chapter actually and spills over into uh, the first five verses here of chapter three to keep preaching to my voice gives out, and then uh, Jacob or Bob or somebody, Pastor Dan, come on up and uh, finish my notes because that's a good chapter. I don't want don't want to lose out on what we're dealing with here. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes out from him and belongs to another man, will she sti- will he still return to her? Will not that land be completely polluted? but you are a harlot, with many lovers yet you turn to me declares the lord and so we got to deal with this issue here and the aspects of divorce and things that are given under mosaic law and uh, the different principles there well let's open the word of prayer ask the father to bless our time ask the father to uh, strengthen my voice and whatever else he chooses to do this day is his shall we pray Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the faithfulness of your word, the fact that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we're not studying a message that was given 2000 and more years ago that we're studying a passage that is alive today, principles today that we need to glean from and we need to make application. Father, Israel was your people. Jerusalem was the place where your name dwelt. And yet you judge them, Father, for their rebellion. How much more will we come under your judgment, Father, if we defy your purpose in our generation? I pray, Father, that we would learn these lessons, that we would make application, and that you would bless this study, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 2 is filled with a number of rebukes. And the final question, a number of rhetorical questions, by the way, using questions to make the point, using questions to force your audience to give you the answer. And in using those questions and forcing those answers, you communicate some tremendous truth. Then we have these final questions and rebukes from chapter 2 They get wrapped up here in uh, the first five verses of chapter 3. And we already read verse 1. You are a harlot with many lovers. Lift up your eyes, verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been violated by the roads you have sat for them like an arab in the desert and you have polluted a land with your harlotry and with your wickedness you know today we might say you know look down the the road and look at all those cheap hotels which one have you not fornicated in all right you got them all covered all the high places of israel and there's not a one of them that you have not defiled yourself And defiled the land. The aspect of fornication that defiles not just the person, not just their body, but the land itself becomes defiled. And we are living in a day of much defilement in uh, in our country. Verse 3, Therefore, the showers have been withheld. There has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken and done evil things, and you have had your way. And the uh, aspects of this are just unthinkable. Now, if you ever do a study on divorce and you study the laws of divorce from Deuteronomy chapter 24, you realize that divorce was permitted in the law. Divorce was a, a facet of permissive will. <coughs> it was never commanded. The Pharisees turned it into a command. It was never commanded, but it was permitted. And Jesus said that through Moses, divorce was permitted because of hardness of heart, because of the the damage that's done to the human soul. And in the hardness of heart, in such cases, divorce is then permitted. But even in the permission of divorce, there were still some rules that were put forth. And as you read in Deuteronomy 24, you'll notice, first rule is that divorce ends the marriage and that remarriage is to be expected. All right, The woman does go out, and she is remarried then to a different husband. All right? In fact, the admonition Jesus said is that stay unmarried. Stay unmarried as long as you can post-divorce. If, in fact, there may be a possibility to reconcile that marriage back together again. As uh, Jesus said, as Paul said, uh, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the best of all possible outcomes then, to turn cursing into blessing is to undo the divorce and be reconciled to the husband. But if, actually, then, there is a remarriage, then it's forever over and done with, with husband number one. He can never take her back, even if she's widowed to husband number two. Whether she's divorced or widowed or any other reason, if there's been husband number two, or three or four or five or what have you, all right. as long as there's husband number two, husband number one can never take her back. And the rules for that are spelled out in Deuteronomy 24. And the rules are spelled out in such a way that we start to understand that serial monogamy is not monogamy. That it is polygamy, same as polygamy. Same as sleeping around, just making it right by, uh, you know, sequential marriage in the process there. And then going back to a previous marriage, you're just playing paperwork games. And God says he's not pleased with that. And there's uh, different issues there. I'm not going to preach the whole doctrine of marriage and divorce this morning. But if you're interested, we did teach it once upon a time out of First Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians chapter seven. To the married I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. And he goes to give the synthesis of divorce doctrine. I understand divorce doctrine is given to married people, <laughs> whereby the command is don't get divorced. All right. But here's the thing, and the point of this chapter, the point of this paragraph Is that Israel expects Yahweh to take her back, and she didn't. She had more than one husband in the meantime. All right, she had countless husbands, countless lovers. All right, and if I'm using those terms interchangeably between husband and lover, or wife and lover, and so forth, that's because marriage is the venue for the sex to take place in God's design. It is called the marriage bed, and so a distinction between. Uh, somebody you're married to and somebody you're not married to, uh, as Jesus told that woman there at the well, you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. All right. And that's the nature of, of promiscuity. So Israel expects Yahweh to take her back despite the countless husbands that she has prostituted herself with. And we talked last week about the language of harlotry and the language of a harlot is used of anything outside of marriage. It has nothing to do with whether you got paid for it or not. That's a side effect, all right? And, uh, and if, if you are outside of marriage, as an unmarried person, you are committing harlotry. And uh, somebody, I forget if it was John Eichmann or one of those old school hard preachers types, might have been Carnegie, I forget who it was, but said, just because you don't get paid for it, that doesn't mean you're not a harlot. You're just a cheap harlot, all right? You're just giving it away, but it's still harlotry in uh, the biblical standard and so i would encourage you then as uh you have time to look through isaiah 55 verses 6 through 9 look through hosea 14 verses 1 through 4 and you'll see the uh, prophetic passages let me grab these just quickly we were in isaiah 55 not that long ago (coughs) verses 6 through 9 seek the lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to uh, the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And, And the reason why this invitation is so significant, because this invitation is absolute. This invitation is not asking how bad a sinner you are and whether you're eligible to come back or not. All right. In human terms, the woman with more than one husband couldn't go back the husband number one. She had forever destroyed that possibility. But in God's plan of grace, even Israel, even Israel with a thousand uh, partners can go back to Yahweh Elohim. And the outrage from Jeremiah chapter 3 is actually the truth from Isaiah 55, from Hosea 14, that this wife can come back no matter what. Yahweh will take her back. Hosea took Gomer back. And that's the point of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet commanded to marry one of these prostitutes and stay married to her even when she was conducting her business and and uh, ruining his marriage, their marriage, all right? And Hosea took her back because Yahweh takes Israel back. And they paint the picture there. You understand. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. We like to quote that verse a lot, but I think sometimes we lose sight of the context that that verse sits in that verse sits in the way god considers things when he invites us to return to him to come to him to trust in jesus christ and to be saved you see we i've I've met people that don't think they can get saved they think that they've done so many bad things and yet there's nothing they've done that wasn't paid for on the cross and they can come and they can believe in jesus christ and receive eternal life there is nothing that would exclude them from coming to the Lord on that basis. Hosea fourteen, verses one through four. <coughs> Hosea fourteen, you get to Daniel, Hosea, Joel. You get to Joel, you've gone too far. Hosea. You know, if you got fourteen chapters, why do you see a labeled a minor prophet? Goodness. Seems insulting. Okay, they are short chapters. The overall book is rather small. <coughs> Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Now here is Hosea, a prophet to the northern kingdom, the final king of which was also named Hosea. I mean, you can't get more blunt than this. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. Nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands, for in you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. Don't you love the language of I will? When it's Yahweh Elohim, when it's the I am saying I will. That's powerful. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel and It goes on. It finishes this chapter. But there it is. Israel expects Yahweh to take her back. And it's rather um, presumptuous on her part for any woman, human woman, to expect a human husband to take her back after, you know, 50 other husbands or or lovers or what have you. It, It would be unthinkable. No human man on the planet would do it. Except maybe Hosea. All right, But God himself does it. God himself takes her back and that is the the shocking aspect of these verses then in verses six and following in addition to the public messages the lord taught jeremiah private lessons and these lessons related to judgment on israel and the promise of restoration i'm going to return back to jeremiah three now and let's look at verses six and following and you start to realize that a lot of times some of the greatest messages, some of the greatest doctrines, some of the greatest blessings that God has ever provided for me happened in my study and wasn't really a part of a series that was to go forth from the pulpit. A lot of times they crept into the pulpit in various places and various ways because how can you keep that stuff in? But ultimately speaking, some tremendous treasures Come in study that, you know, that's not for the flock. That's for me. (laughs) It might be for the flock someday. But man, I better learn this and I better learn this now. And so uh, when we look at verse six here, I think we uh, pick up some of this. The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah, the king. And we have a message and unlike in chapter two, where we're not necessarily seeing Jeremiah stand up and say, thus saith the Lord and relaying this to the people. Kind of seems like this is the private block of instruction that Jeremiah is being given. The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king. And what was really sad about this is Josiah was the last good king of the southern kingdom. After him it was downhill. It was one bad king after another, after another, after another until the destruction of Jerusalem. There was no more good king after Josiah. And even though Josiah did some great things in his day, it was largely not followed by the people. There was uh, Josiah and Hilkiah the priest and uh, Holda the prophetess and some of the, uh, the leading figures in Jerusalem. But the basic, the man on the street was, was still reaping the, the harvest that Manasseh had sown for 55 years. They were still pursuing all the, the fertility rituals and all the other uh, idolatry and evil of Manasseh's day. And so uh, Jeremiah receives these private lessons related to the judgment on Israel, the promise of restoration, looking to the older sister and realizing that the younger sister is even worse. That the northern kingdom being swept away ought to be a wake-up call, right? You know, the older sister gets pregnant out of wedlock. The younger sister, ought to look at that and go, hmm, that's a train wreck. I don't want to go there, okay? And yet the younger sister doesn't. The younger sister makes it even worse by not following in the example of the older sister. So, <clears throat> the Lord, verse 6, Jeremiah 3, 6, The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? That's the northern kingdom. Ten tribes in the north, known as the uh, northern kingdom of Israel. She went up on And of course, he wasn't alive to see it. Jeremiah is ten years old. Okay? <laughs> He's eight years old, ten years old, whatever. He's a youth. The northern kingdom was swept away long before Jeremiah was ever born. But if he's been studying his scriptures and if he's been learning as a prophet from the Lord, like in this episode, then he knows full well about these truths. She went up on every high hill and under every green tree and she was a harlot there. And I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. You know, if, had, had they been repentant in their captivity, conceivably, a, a Nehemiah kind of person could have brought them back from Assyria. Could have brought them back to the southern nation of Judah. See, that better didn't happen. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Some fun word studies there with treachery. If you ever study traitors, um, you pay attention to that verse. All right. And I saw in verse 8 that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. You could, you could view the Assyrian captivity in a metaphor now as Yahweh just writing out that certificate. Telling Israel, goodbye. I divorce you. It was as simple as that in uh, the ancient world. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. So you talk about not learning the lesson and then doing exactly the same thing and making it even worse. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land. Murder defiles the land, harlotry defiles the land. Both things will leave physical land. Territory becomes defiled. And when it reaches a limit, the land vomits. When the land vomits, Yahweh steps in and uh, changes ownership of that land. All right? Why are we not Comanche land anymore? Because we're so great and wonderful, God couldn't help Himself. Right? Manifest destiny, sea to shining sea. We're great, we're marvelous, we're wonderful. Well, our turn's coming. And when this land vomits, who follows Texas in owning this, this land? Acts 17, by the way, if you want more on that. So, um, she polluted the land, committed adultery with stones and trees in spite of all this. And if that imagery causes you to wonder, well, we're not doing this verse by verse. I'm just to pass the. <laughs> There's actually a significance to that. Yet, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. She made it even worse because she engaged in the same fornication, but she cloaked it under a mask, a deceitful mask of religion. saying, yeah, we're going to still be faithful here in the temple. See, in the north, they didn't have the temple. In the north, they just had a couple of golden calves, right? But we have a temple. So we can do all the fornicating they did, but we'll cloak it with the temple. We'll be very religious, right? Like these folks that show up on Easter Sunday and Christmas, and that's kind of it for the year. Um, they, they feel like, well, it's a it's an occasion to show how religious we are. Hmm. And the Lord said to me, "Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah." It's like telling Capernaum. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have a better judgment day than you guys. <laughs> okay? Saying, because the men of Sodom will rise up in the day of judgment and they're going to testify against you. Because if the miracle was done in you, would have been done in them. They would have, have repented. So we have these, uh, these aspects here. It's interesting. Now the time frame for this, the time frame is stated as Josiah's reign. He reigned from 639 to 609. <coughs> and the context, I think, the context places this early in Josiah's reign. Uh, in fact, I would take all of chapters 2-6 through six of Jeremiah and place it prior to the discovery of the law in 621 B.C. Um, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks back uh, when Jeremiah was called and he was called in the, in the third year, was it? The third year of, of uh, Josiah the king? Or 13th year? Yeah, 13th year. In the 13th year of his reign. Well, it was in the 18th year of his reign that the law was found, all right? And they find a copy of the law in the temple and they go, wow, what's that? <laughs> that probably ought to be something we'll pay attention to, all right? Because this is the standard of how we're supposed to live. So the time frame here is during Josiah's reign. I think it's early. If you want to read Second Chronicles 34, you can. Verses 14 and 15, it will detail the finding of the law. And how the law was found. And it is quite striking. How many features from the book of Deuteronomy. Show up in the book of Jeremiah. And I think it is interesting. That by the time Jeremiah composed. His text in the, in the form that we have it today. Uh, the law had been found. And it was having an impact. At least in the king. And at least in Jeremiah. Even if uh, the people weren't paying much attention. As far as that goes. This um, timeline. If you ever play with the. Timelines in your Logos Bible software, you can kind of get a picture there for the the time frame involved. Uh, Jeremiah is called as a prophet in uh, 626 B.C. So you got him spotted right there. You got the reign of Josiah and Judah right there. You have the religious reform here in the 620s. And it's interesting, as this was happening, on the world stage, what else is happening? It's the twilight of Assyria. The Assyrians that everyone was terrified of, the Assyrians that had swept away in the northern kingdom, and the Assyrians that Hezekiah needed Isaiah's encouragement to stand firm against, they're going away. And we start to see the, uh, the death of Ashurbanipal, of Assyria, the rise of nabal the father of Nebuchadnezzar, the one that's going to successfully revolt and bring about the rise of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar will complete. So, I mean, you're right there. And I think when believers reach momentous times in history, we better pay attention. We better be in fellowship. If our nation is on the brink of something, something bad or something good. But if we're on the brink of something, believers in this land better be equipped. And I can't think anything better than Isaiah and Jeremiah to equip this flock to either prepare for our captivity or prepare for our deliverance. And I don't know yet if I'm an Isaiah and and the United States is going to be delivered or if I'm a Jeremiah and we're going to watch the walls fall around us. Either way, the Lord's still faithful. Anyway, I encourage, uh, if if you use the Bible software, those timelines are kind of fun. Faithless Israel and treacherous Judah Like those for nicknames. Faithless Israel and treacherous Judah are two sisters who played the harlot in their adulteries against the Lord. And what we have here in a very short message, verses 6 through 10, basically, gets expanded by Ezekiel. Ezekiel gives two complete chapters over to this concept Ezekiel chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 23. And, uh, you know, if you let your children read those chapters, make sure they're mature and old enough to handle it it talks about young people and the trouble they get into when clothes start getting removed and when bosoms start getting handled and things of that nature all right but you'll notice the same exact message that we have here is that these sisters are defying the plan of god okay and the metaphor of course for adultery figures the spiritual adultery they are defying Yahweh Elohim. They're not worshiping the Lord God. They're following after these false gods. And that's adultery in God's book. And so the illustration of that gets kind of vivid in, uh, in those realms. <coughs> All right. Let's look at verses 11 and following. And the Lord said to me, again, it's a series of things. Yahweh keeps talking to Jeremiah. And in in here, do we see in here anywhere where Jeremiah stands up and starts preaching this to the people? All right. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. How sad is that? Like whoever would have thought that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have a better judgment day than Capernaum and those places. Now here, go and proclaim these words but not to the people. Go and proclaim these words towards the north. Towards the north. In other words, the land where they departed from. The northern kingdom where they used to live. Alright? They're gone. They're long gone. Syrians took them away. They brought in another captive people and planted them there. A bunch of people from further east and whatever they were named before, they had an assortment of names before. But they get brought to live in the northern kingdom territory and through their descendants they will become known as the Samaritans all right which is why by Jesus day there's a bunch of Samaritans living there in between Judea and Galilee and the Jews hate them because they're living in their in their land all right so Jeremiah is preaching to the north Jeremiah preaches to the north in a call to repentance for the northern Kingdom of Israel He'd be like, what would a pastor do if on a Sunday morning he was ready to preach and nobody showed up? So he's looking out there and he sees a bunch of empty seats. One thing he might do if he was so led, and he's got his notes handy, just pull out your notes and preach to the empty seats. Because there's some people who should be seated in those seats. And they're accountable. All right? Seven times... In Revelation 2 and 3, he that has an ear, let him hear. what the Holy Spirit communicates to the local churches. And so if the Holy Spirit has crafted a message for an audience, are they accountable? Can they skip out and miss it and say, oh, well, I'm not accountable. Should have been there. Could have been there. And this message is for you. So he's preaching to the north. And he's saying, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only, here's all you got to do, acknowledge your iniquity. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. You have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you. I will take you one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. You know it's interesting in the end times when they're gathered. One is taken, one is left. We got different language there. And it's it, it even divides up families. There's some that are not born again, they are not saved, some that are. Different things there in the second advent of, of Jesus Christ. So he's preaching to the north, kind of interesting Ezekiel has similar ministry you ever do a study on Ezekiel he preaches towards the mountains all right preaching towards the mountains not singing I guess he could be Julie Andrews right singing in the in the mountains or whatever the hills are alive <clears throat> but Ezekiel was preaching to the mountains in chapter six in chapter thirty six it's kind of interesting the way God instructs his prophets to preach like that. I think Stan Newton used to say he would preach at the drop of a hat. And if he had to, he'd drop the hat himself. You know, just throw the hat down there and start preaching. <coughs> Stan's got the funniest story on this. Stan, uh, do I have time for this? Stan, uh, when he was in seminary, had a home Bible study. And these folks were invited over. supposed to be a great thing. And no one showed up zero the only one there was carla his wife and he thought well carla's here and he put all the work into this message and he wanted he was using it as a rehearsal for something in seminary and he thought well okay at least carla's here so he started going through his message and part way through carla fell asleep <laughs> and stan just kind of thought and said okay all right lord can get worse than this, right? It's all uphill from here, and it's <coughs> anyway. He tells it better than I do, but it's a <coughs> it's a good principle. All right, they're not in the north anymore, but preach to the north. Preach to those mountains, the scene of the crime, if you will, where in the high places they were involved in their idolatrous worship. Preach to those mountains in uh, in different ways. <coughs> not going to spend a lot of time on this, but, you know, Ezekiel was Jeremiah's contemporary. Ezekiel was a young man and uh, carried away in 597, turned 30 when he got there. And uh, 30 is the age that as a priest, Ezekiel might expect to uh, begin his career in the temple. Only problem was he was a captive in Babylon and the temple about to get destroyed. And unlike Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a priest, but he was from a line that was banned from serving in the priesthood. Uh, Ezekiel was very much eligible to serve in the priesthood, except he was a captive uh, and never does serve as a priest. And he's getting a message very comparable to Jeremiah's message. This is before Fox News or satellite television or any of the the, the global world coverage. God would simply send different prophets to different places and coordinate their messages together. A lot better than satellite uh, hookup or anything of the sort. Ezekiel chapter 6. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. So stand up and start preaching to the mountains and tell them you're preaching to them. Nobody else is listening to you, so preach to them. All right. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you and I will destroy your high places. See, this is the scene of the crime. This is where the altars were. This is where the fornication was taking place. This is where the child sacrifice was being offered up. So much of the fertility ritual ended up with unwanted babies, and so, well, deal with that too in the way that an unbeliever does. All right? Anyway, so there it is in Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you, Aha! and the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, for good reason they have made you desolate and crushed you from every side. Why do you think God permitted that? Because he's got a plan. All right and crushed you from every side so that you would become a possession of the rest of the nations, and you have been taken up in the talk of the whispering of the people. You become a byword. You become part of the chit-chat and the gossip. Therefore, verse 4, O mountains of of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, to the valleys, to the desolate wastes, and to the forsaken cities, which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations which are round about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, and he's got a message of a future for them. All right. It's interesting. And so when, when Jeremiah is preaching this, in 11 through 14, notice what follows. He says, return, O faithless sons, return, acknowledge your iniquity. It's all they got to do. In the, and of course, they add to it in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. <clears throat> they add to it when they crucify their Christ. They got even more they got to confess now having crucified the Christ. Israel has to look upon Him whom they pierced and call upon Him to be saved. Verse 15, Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Notice, why why do they have the shepherds they have now? And why will they have the shepherds that they're going to get then? Why do we have the president we have now? And why are we going to get the president we're going to get then? All right, whoever we get, it's in God's hands. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, that they will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. It actually disappears from human history when Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. If it was carried across to Babylon, it was never seen in Babylon. And if it was taken to Babylon, it never returned to Jerusalem. If it was plundered by the Egyptians, then Scripture doesn't describe that. Okay? If it's in a warehouse in Washington, D.C., Scripture doesn't describe that. The end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. Wherever it is, it's not coming back. And who cares anyway? We've got something better than a mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. We've got a throne of grace and we can approach boldly in time of need. This uh, invitation, the invitation to repent, the invitation to come, it comes with a glimpse of the millennium in reunion with Judah. It's not only inviting faithless Israel to come back, but they can come back with treacherous Judah, that a united kingdom will be restored. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. That will be the Gentile name for it. Israel will have a different name for it. Yahweh et the Lord our righteousness. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. It is a true repentance. And I think the, the nevermore tells me that Israel has no part in the Gog Magog rebellion at the end of the millennium. That's strictly a Gentile rebellion because they are so uh, repentant. They are so full of regret and remorse and shame. Shame is useful in the plan of God when it motivates repentance. The sorrow that produces repentance. You know, read 2 Corinthians sometime. You'll learn all about that. Sorrow according to the will of God. The sorrow that produces repentance. In those days... nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel. You know, they've been divided since the death of Solomon, right? The death of Solomon, Rehoboam becomes king and ten tribes say, no thanks. We're done with the house of David. And they accept Jeroboam instead of Rehoboam and they go to the north and they create a a divided kingdom. Israel's been divided since the death of, Saul, of Solomon, they will be restored. <clears throat> as it says here. So in those days, verse 18, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I give, gave to your fathers as an inheritance. See, the regathering under Zerubbabel, the regathering under Ezra, the return under Nehemiah. Was that every Jewish person on the planet? No, there was already a significant diaspora. The diaspora of the, of the Assyrian captivity was still largely in effect. And by then, they'd gone to all kinds of places, including Turkey and Greece and Rome and Africa and different places. So when Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah lead 10% of the Jewish population back from Babylon, there's still a, a, a dispersion. This is waiting for second advent. When Jesus brings all the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. All right. Verse 19 and following. (coughs) Then I said. Now it's interesting. I think it's still Yahweh speaking. Some people try to swap this out and make this Jeremiah speaking. But no, I, I think it's still Yahweh speaking. He says, I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land. If it is Jeremiah speaking, it's it's his wishful thinking, saying, could we do this today? Right? Could we do this today? We have this glimpse of the millennium. The millennium is a time of mourning. The millennium will be a time of mourning, which is why it's only a thousand years. All right? It's just a day. God sets apart a day for their sorrow. Remember that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. And in our resurrection, we're going to have the time proportions and and perspective that that God has. The millennium is not the end of God's plan. We know that, right? Even if they're not always so clear at Schaefer conferences, okay? Because according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, do you look for these things? We're not looking for the millennium. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Maybe you've heard that verse before. Okay? I start every sermon with it. Every message starts with 2 Peter 3. Because it's not the millennium. God did not give millennial promises to Abraham. He gave eternal promises to Abraham. The Davidic covenant is not a millennial covenant. It's an eternal covenant. The promises to Abraham and his seed, the promises to David and his seed, same seed, Jesus Christ, are not millennial promises. What kind of a short term gift is that? They are eternal promises. Millennium, though, is a time of sorrow. So I said, verse 19, how I would set you among my sons. Remember, Israel is the firstborn, but there are other sons, the Gentile nations and give you a pleasant land the most beautiful inheritance of the nations and i said you shall call me my father and not turn away from following me surely as a woman depart treacherously departs from her lover so you have dealt treacherously with me o house of israel declares the lord see the only difference is if a woman decides she's going to be sneaky and and hide something from her husband uh, she may succeed in that or she may not but she's not succeeding in that as far as the Lord knows. He knows all of this. It's the same thing with Judas. Judas was a betrayer, but Jesus knew it. It wasn't a big shock to Jesus. It was already revealed to Jesus who the traitor was going to be. That's why He dipped the bread and handed it to Him. And then announced, the one that I gave the bread is the one that's betraying me. And the other 11 didn't have a clue. They couldn't remember. Who did He give the bread to? Was it you? Was it you? Judas is sitting right there saying, oops, (laughs) he knows. And I know he knows. All right? Imagine Judas' fear at that point. A voice is heard on the bare heights. The weepings and supplications of the sons of Israel. A voice is heard. What voice is this? Because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord their God. But they come, they're brought to the point of sorrow they're brought to the point of repentance. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Where else would we go? You know Jesus was real popular when he was feeding the five thousand, but then he starts teaching doctrine and they're they're bailing on him, and they're leaving in droves, especially when they find out he's not going to Keep doing that food miracle. He's not going to keep feeding them every day. They're leaving him big time, and they're leaving left and right. He turns to Peter and he says, "Are you guys leaving too?" And what does Peter say? He says, "Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go?" And it's like repentant Israel here. They've been filled with harlotry. They've been filled with sin. Filled with rebellion. They have chased every false God imaginable. Where are they going to go? When it comes time to repent, the only one they can turn to is the one they betrayed, the husband they were faithless against. It's their only option. (coughs) And so, behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the hills are a deception, a tumult on the mountains. Surely, in the Lord, our God is the salvation of Israel. And until they're humbled to acknowledge that, they can't get their kingdom. And it's even worse than that, because with the death of Christ, they have to acknowledge the Savior whom they pierced. But the shameful thing has consumed the labor of our fathers since our youth. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters let us lie down in our shame what are we going to do about it we're just going to beat ourselves up with guilt and and not advance in the plan of god what do we do in our shame do we have a season where we acknowledge it where we experience it and then when we surrender it and give it to the lord and say never again that's it we're done this is yours and i'm done The sorrow is over. The guilt is over. The grief is over. I've learned the lessons I'm supposed to learn. Never again. I believe Israel will do this for a thousand years. That Israel will repent in the tribulation. They will call upon the Lord so as to be saved. But then they will identify their sin for that thousand year time. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our humiliation cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers, from our youth, even to this day, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. And without that generation having the brutal honesty with themselves, the kingdom of heaven will never come upon this earth. That's why in First Advent, John the Baptist came and said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. (laughs) And they didn't they did not but that was the imperative was repent change your thinking adjust accordingly for the kingdom and instead you see what this is doing here this is pointing back to the fathers and as rotten as they were and then looking at ourselves and saying we're not any better we're doing the same stuff and more in jesus day they they weren't that humble in jesus day they they built tombs to the prophets And they said, if we had been alive back in those days, we wouldn't have killed those prophets. See, because we're better than they were. Boy, our fathers were were bad. Man, they killed the prophets. They rejected the word of the Lord. Oh, those former generations were horrible. Of course, we're the greatest thing since sliced bread. The Pharisees felt they they were the pinnacle of all things Judaism. And Jesus says, Are you kidding? Your father's killed the prophets. You're going to kill me. (laughs) The prophets were saying, the Christ is coming and you killed them. Now the Christ has come and you're killing me. And so all the blood from righteous Abel to Zechariah is coming on this generation. So the millennium here is going to be this time of mourning. If you look over again, (coughs) the parallel here, Ezekiel 16. Remember, this is one of those chapters and don't read it if you're too young. But get down to the end of that chapter. Ezekiel 16. And in verses 61 through 63. Actually, this chapter is pretty tame by today's norms and standards. I mean, you watch a typical network television sitcom and uh man it's all taking off clothes and jumping into bed and doing fondling bosoms and whatever else all right um but that's the kind of chapter you're looking at here in in ezekiel 16 now look at the end of the chapter though um you in verse 58 you've borne the penalty of your lewdness In abominations, the Lord declares, for thus says the Lord God, I will do with you as you have done, you who have uh, despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you. See, it's not about them, it's about His covenant. It's that God's not a liar. He's got eternal promises to fulfill to Abraham and to David. And so they don't deserve it, but they're going to benefit. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Jeremiah promises it in 31, 31 A new covenant declares the Lord. Then you will be, Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember, notice, Remember and be ashamed. Well, how long does that last? Okay? This verse doesn't exactly say it, but I think when we combine it with all these other passages, it's the duration of the thousand-year reign. The duration of that transitional, uh, provisional government. That you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares. And so they will be remembering and they will be ashamed. Over to chapter 20, verses 42 through 44. This is even more blunt. (coughs) You will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. There you will remember your ways and your deeds, with which you have defiled yourselves and you will loathe yourselves and there's a certain aspect of this that even today you talk to a a jewish person today and they will even make jokes they'll laugh about it Uh, they'll talk about jewish self-loathing all the time they get very good at it nothing compared to what they're going to do in the millennium because then it's going to be real and it's going to be valid and it's going to be uh prophesied it's going to be fulfilled You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. Well, how long do I have to loathe myself? Israel might ask. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. And I think at the end of the Gog Magog, when Satan is released for a short time, the nations demand his release, They demand that Jesus Christ step off that throne and Israel stays faithful and the Jewish people say no and they remain in Jerusalem and support Jesus Christ on the throne of David. Then Jesus Christ will say, all right, loathing is over. You have stayed faithful. Well done, good and faithful servants. And then fire comes down from heaven and destroys the the Gentile rebellion. 36-31, 36-31, likewise. Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, thirty six thirty one. <coughs> you will remember your evil ways and your deeds, that you were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your own iniquities and your abominations. And you know the context for this comes after, there's quite a bit of contrast between the restoration of the land for the Jewish nation and some of the environmental conditions and other parts of planet Earth that the Gentiles have to deal with. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. Zechariah, you say, well, who cares about Zechariah? Isn't he one of those minor prophets? Yep. He also has 14 chapters. But in chapter 12, that crosses over to chapter 13, Is this significant? You bet it's significant. Zechariah is the book that Jesus was quoting on the night in which he was betrayed. You think it was was heavy on his heart? You know, if I know for a fact that I'm getting arrested before the end of this message and I'm going to die, what scripture would I choose to preach to my flock? Well, I don't know. I don't don't have such prophetic insight to when I'm going to get arrested and killed, but, but Jesus knew that, that was the night that, that the arrest was coming and he exhorted them out of Zechariah <clears throat> zechariah 12:10 I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced now notice when is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit it's after the Armageddon judgments it's after the return of Christ it's after the signs in the heavens They will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. Isn't this powerful? They will look on me whom they have pierced. Six centuries before the crucifixion. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. They're going to know him as the Christ. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of hated in the plain of Megiddo. You know the losers in Armageddon—they had some mourning too, but this mourning is going to be so much greater. It's going to be a spiritual mourning in humility and in true repentance, and the land will mourn every family by itself. I mean, there's some things you want to do together collectively, in your clans, in your tribes, in your nations. There's other things you go home and you you mourn with your family. The family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves. Family of the house of Nathan by itself their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself, their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself, and their wives by themselves. It's going to take a while. It's going to be a process. All right. And who knows, maybe family by family by family, it doesn't quite last the whole time. Maybe when each family reaches their... I'm just speculating. Maybe when each family reaches the end of their grieving, that they are then brought to the patriarchs to feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said many will come from the east and the west and will recline and will dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So perhaps throughout the thousand years it comes in stages. But nevertheless, there is a morning. And guess what? This is the morning that God turns into joy he turns the morning into joy right the, the she who bore no child is going to bear a child she who was barren is going to be uh, become a mother these messages we saw in isaiah 35 and isaiah 61 matthew 5:4 blessed are the morning blessed are the those who mourn for they shall be comforted i'm just running out of time and i'm running out of voice all right well these are the easy chapters next week we got Jeremiah chapter four and uh, we got Tohu Wabohu and we got some things in this chapter that go back that are older than Adam and Eve and we got some concepts so uh, get a good night's sleep put on your thinking cap we'll be back one week from today and we got our work in front of us here in Jeremiah chapter four Father I thank you for your truth and thank you for your faithfulness Thank you, Father, for the power of your word. Now it comes alive. I pray, Father, we would be mindful. Uh, the southern kingdom didn't learn from the northern kingdom. And they were doubly accountable because of it. Here we are in the church. We should be learning from the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the whole Old Testament. And the New Testament. Well, we got a Hebrew canon and a Greek canon. How accountable are we? We're 66-fold accountable in a complete canon of Scripture, Father. And I ask that we would be mindful of, uh, of our own harlotries, of our own rebellion. Cause us to grieve and mourn. Bring us to the point of repentance. That, Father, we might confess, be restored to fellowship, and walk in the light as he himself is in the light. I do thank you, Father. And I pray this morning, Father, we've got some visitors. We've got... Some folks here I've never met. If there's anybody sitting here this morning that does not have eternal life, that has never heard the gospel, does not that thinks even now that going to heaven is for good people and going to hell is for bad people, or whatever else may be, Father, I pray that today would be the day that they would hear about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. How he, we're the ones who should have been there. We're the sinners. He had no sin. But he went to the cross and accepted judgment in our place and now father i can trust that i can trust him i can place my faith in jesus christ and every aspect of his righteousness is then applied to my account and i receive his life eternal life by faith in jesus christ and i don't need to walk an aisle i don't need to get baptized i don't need to stand up and testify right here right now with my head bowed my eyes closed I can trust in Jesus Christ, believe in Jesus Christ, and be saved. I thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.